1: This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Five young women vanished off the streets of Ipswich during a five week period in late 2006. Working in one of the oldest professions put the missing women at risk. The secrecy required to operate in the red light district meant there were no witnesses.
0: As darkness descends upon Ipswich every night, so does a heightened sense of fear, which is not apparent in the daylight.
1: I don't feel very safe at the moment, hence why I'm on the bus. I don't want to walk out in the dark at night on my own.
2: Detectives have spent the day trying to cast more light into the shadowy world of Ipswich's red light district to try to answer the question, who murdered five prostitutes? Is there a serial murderer on the loose in East Anglia?
1: Welcome to season eight, episode 44 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The second installment will be available in four days. This is the final case of season eight. At around 9pm on November 1st, 2006, Kerry Nickel reported her 19-year-old daughter Tanya missing. Kerry had last seen Tanya two days earlier when she left their home on Wolverstone Close in Ipswich just after 10.30pm. Tanya told her mother she planned to get the bus from Belmont Road into the town centre to meet friends. She pulled on a black jacket before heading out the door in blue jeans and sparkly pink high heels. Carrie was naturally concerned about her daughter's well-being. Their relationship had been strained for several years. She knew Tanya had struggled with drug use, and Kerry even helped Tanya seek treatment for her addiction in the past. In 2003 at 16, Tanya Nicol was legally allowed to leave the family home moving away from her mother and younger brother posed problems when she found herself living in a hostel where she was introduced to heroin. At 17, she moved again, this time to her own property provided by the council. At this point, Tanya's mother Carrie believed her daughter was on the right track. Tanya had a job and seemed to be managing on her own. Kerry got the impression that Tanya was doing well, even though they didn't see each other often. However, a year later, things had changed, and Tanya had returned to live at home. There were some noticeable changes to her appearance. The teenager had lost a lot of weight, and her skin was blemished and sallow, the appearance commonly indicative of heavy drug use. Although Kerry had her suspicions that Tanya was using drugs again, she was fearful of pushing her daughter away, so she didn't confront her often. On one occasion, Carrie found used syringes in Tanya's room. She mentioned the discovery to Tanya, who brushed it off, saying the syringes belonged to a friend. When Tanya left home on October 30th, Carrie, who was on high alert, called her daughter 15 minutes after she walked out the front door to ensure that she safely got the bus. Carrie's method of communication was a quick phone call or text and she worked the night shift as a carer. Generally, Tanya was good at keeping in touch despite what was happening in her personal life. Night turned today and Tanya still had not come home or been in touch. Alarm bells weren't ringing yet, as Carrie assumed that Tanya had stayed out with a friend, although something was playing on her mind. When Carrie tried to call her daughter, it went straight to voicemail. On the evening of October 31st, there was a knock at the door. It wasn't Tanya, but a group of children playing trick or treat. It occurred to Kerry that Tanya might have returned home and was sleeping in her bed, but when Kerry opened the bedroom door and found Tanya's bed empty, she started to worry. Kerry called a few of Tanya's friends to ask if they had seen her, but no one had. After failing to contact Tanya or anyone that knew where she was, Kerry contacted the police and reported her daughter missing. Tanya Nichol was described as being 5 feet 2 inches tall, biracial, with shoulder-length brown hair and a marked complexion. Detective Superintendent Andy Henwood was assigned to the missing person case, and it didn't take long for investigators to uncover that Tanya was leading a double life. Under the assumed name of Chantelle, she had worked at a massage parlour in town called Cleopatras. Tanya's former employer said she had to let Tanya go when she saw how bad her drug addiction was. With no other way to fund her habit, Tanya began operating as a sex worker in Ipswich's Red Light district. The combination of her drug dependence and her occupation put her at high risk. Even so, the police knew that it was not unusual for women in Tanya's position to purposefully disappear for a few days if they built up a drug debt. Nevertheless, other sex workers in the area told investigators that Tanya wasn't the type of person to take what she couldn't pay for. Officers checked CCTV along Tanya's route into the town centre and came across footage of her outside a garage near Hanford Road at 11.02pm. Forty minutes later, her phone was switched off and had not reconnected to the network since. Nikki Totman, a friend of Tanya's, said that it was out of character for her not to contact her family, especially her mother. Nikki said... She is a very sweet, quiet type of girl, and when I first met her she seemed timid, and she stayed like that. She doesn't like to cause arguments and is a really lovely girl. It didn't sink in that she had gone missing at first, and the other night I cried because she is so sweet. She is a lovely person and I don't see why anyone would intentionally hurt her. She wouldn't have caused anyone any harm or upset anyone. I saw her a week or so before she went missing, and she was really happy then, and I said I would catch up with her soon. That was the last I saw of her. I really don't know what could have happened to her. She could have been snatched. She could have got into a car with someone she knew. I don't know. Sex workers were questioned about Tanya Nichols' clients and whether there was anyone who seemed suspicious in the weeks before she went missing. One woman, Paula Clonell, gave a statement to the police on November 13th and explained that she knew Tanya in passing, and they would sometimes share a cigarette when they saw each other on the street. Paula told the investigators about a man named Tom who would often collect Tanya and drive her into town so she could work. Other witnesses reported seeing Tanya on the night she went missing, speaking to the driver of a dark-coloured car. Just over two weeks after Tanya Nickel disappeared, on November 15th in the early hours, a similar missing persons report came in. 25-year-old Gemma Adams was reported missing by her boyfriend John Simpson, after failing to return home by 2am. I dropped
3: her off um, just at uh, the Freemasons and um, I kissed her, said I love her, and she walked off down to London Road. Right? Oh, it's been terrible.
1: Absolutely terrible. I feel like half of me is missing. I really do. Gemma and John had been together for 10 years, having met while she was a student at Kesgrave High School. Unfortunately, the couple both discovered heroin and became addicted. Gemma Adams was estranged from her family. She had also lost her job at a motor insurance firm due to her drug dependence, so sex work provided the money she needed to fund her habit. She had been a familiar face in the red-light district of Ipswich for two years. However, her situation was unusual as she was one of the very few sex workers with a boyfriend who usually kept an eye on her. John had walked Gemma to Bramford Road at 10pm that night and arranged as always to see her back at their flat at 2am. Gemma was white and stood 5 feet 2 inches tall with long blonde hair, a slim frame and blemished skin. The last time John had seen his girlfriend, he recalled her wearing a black waist-length waterproof hooded jacket, light blue jeans with studded pockets, a red top, and white and chrome trainers. Gemma had multiple ear piercings and wore gold earrings, silver rings on both hands and a black watch on her left wrist. She had also been carrying a small black handbag. When officers spoke to Gemma's colleagues on the street, some claimed they had last seen her outside the BMW garage on West End Road shortly after 1am. A A few hours after Gemma was reported missing, a Suffolk police constable went to her parents' home in Kesgrave to ask if they had seen her. Like Tanya Nichols' parents and the parents of many other sex workers, Brian and Gail Adams had no idea that their daughter had been involved in prostitution. Once it was established that Gemma had not gone home to her parents, detectives organised search efforts throughout the Red Light District in Ipswich. Other witnesses confirmed that they had last seen Gemma getting into a car on Hanford Road at about 1.15am. Gemma, who was trying to get clean by going on a methadone program, had picked up her prescription on November 14th, but she failed to pick it up the following day. Known sex offenders living in the area were questioned, and drivers were stopped and asked if they had seen either of the missing women. Detective Superintendent Andy Henwood said at the time, ''We are very concerned for both girls.'' We are treating the investigations as separate at the moment, but recognize the very distinct similarities between the investigations and are keeping an open mind in respect of linking them specifically. Referring to Tanya and Gemma's line of work, Detective Inspector Darren Tompkins added These women deserve as much protection from the police as anyone else. Suddenly a notable police presence was seen in Ipswich's red light district as sex workers were urged to be as cautious as possible and look out for one another. It was made clear that women did not need to fear being prosecuted for their work if they came forward with information about their clients. A mobile police station was set up on West End Road. Appeal posters were given out to pedestrians in the town and fans at a football match nearby. On November 17th, Detective Superintendent Henwood commented, As the days go on, we are becoming increasingly concerned for the welfare of Tanya and Gemma. Their line of work makes them extremely vulnerable, and we are working hard to bring these investigations to a satisfactory conclusion. Over the past few nights there has been a far greater police presence in the red light area of Ipswich. We have spoken to hundreds of people, and this information is being followed up. However, the information has been somewhat limited with further sightings of both women. We are hoping that the leaflets and posters may jog people's memories and give us vital information to move these investigations forward. Suffolk police helicopter was dispatched to conduct an aerial search of Portman Road. At the same time, roadblocks were set up on Hanford Road and Burlington Road, where Tanya Nickel was known to work. Over 50 local officers had been drafted in to work on the case, and investigators liaised with other police forces in neighbouring counties to see if there had been similar disappearances in recent months. Female officers took part in reconstructions Dressed in clothing similar to what Tanya and Gemma had last been seen wearing As weeks passed, anniversary appeals brought in hundreds of calls Still, Detective Chief Inspector David Skevington Who was leading the inquiry into Gemma Adams' disappearance Felt the people were withholding information Gemma's mother, Gail, spoke publicly for the first time on November 29th. She described the family's devastation and how desperate they were to hear from Gemma. Gail said, ''There have been no rows or upsets between us, and we want her to know that she is always welcome back home. We would urge people to come forward with any information and contact police.'' Three days later, on the morning of December 2, 2006, water bailiff Trevor Saunders arrived at work at Hintlesham Fisheries. Trevor was required to check all of the bodies of water near the fishing lakes. He walked along Belstead Brook, checking for any blockages or issues caused by recent flooding. It had rained heavily in the area over the previous two weeks. As Trevor made his way upstream to a bend in the brook, he noticed something sticking out of the water. Despite the crisp weather, the sun was shining brightly and Trevor could see what looked like a mannequin. He waded into the brook and began clearing leaves and twigs blocking his path. He brushed off the figure in the muddy water and realised how cold it was to the touch. After clearing away more debris, something moved, allowing some blonde hair to rise to the surface of the water. As Trevor hurriedly scooped the remaining leaves away, he uncovered the face of a young woman. The awful discovery was called in just before 12pm, and investigators arrived at the scene minutes later. Due to the area around the brook being so muddy, it was suspected that the body had been dumped further upstream before getting lodged in the dike. The woman's remains were removed and transported to Ipswich Hospital later that night, with a post-mortem examination carried out by Home Office pathologist Dr Nat Carey. No obvious signs of violence or sexual assault were noted. There was evidence of decomposition, which suggested the body had been submerged in the water for around two weeks. Although her lungs were hyperinflated, she had not inhaled water, which ruled out drowning as a cause of death. Redness and discoloration of the skin around her nose and below her eyes, as well as hemorrhaging in the left eye, indicated that the victim had been asphyxiated somehow, but the pathologist could not say for certain. Toxicologists concluded that there was morphine and methadone found in the woman's bloodstream, but she had not died of an overdose. It was not a natural death. The young woman was likely the victim of murder. At this stage, there was little doubt that she was one of the missing women, and her earrings and blonde hair matched the description of Gemma Adams. My mother and older sister had the awful duty of formally identifying her body the following day. Gemma was the middle child of Brian and Gail Adams, a happily married couple who had made a life for themselves and their children in a beautiful home not far from Ipswich. After attending Heath Primary School, Gemma moved on to Kesgrave High School. She was popular, and her parents didn't mind that Gemma's teenage friends spent a lot of time at their home. Brian and Gail would later tell the Daily Mail that Gemma had always had a rescue complex. She would take care of mistreated animals, and her compassionate nature attracted her to young people who had fallen on hard times. At 16, Gemma met John Simpson, who had moved to the area from Scotland. They quickly became a couple, and when Gemma finished school, she completed a GNVQ qualification in administration. She then secured employment with a motor insurance company. After moving in with John and away from the watchful eyes of her parents, Gemma spiralled into drug addiction. As it took its toll on her life, she was fired from her job. Tragically, John Simpson never recovered from Gemma's death, and he felt enormous guilt for what had happened. He died of an overdose in September 2018. Once Brian and Gail had found out about Gemma's drug habit when she was younger, they tried to get her help and she started taking methadone to dampen her heroin cravings. However, Gemma soon spiralled back into addiction, and she stopped visiting her parents despite their attempts to bridge the divide. Jack, Gemma's younger brother, issued a touching statement about his sister after people left messages of condolence on a memorial page set up by the Ipswich Star. Jack said, ''The Gemma that I remember,'' And the Gemma that will stay in my and my whole family's hearts for the rest of our lives is a kind-hearted, fun-loving, cheeky, humorous Gemma and not the Gemma that has been widely portrayed across the media which has been a result of drugs and the massive hold it can and does take. She always wanted to help and improve the lives of others around her and she'd always put everybody else first. She was a beautiful young woman with her whole life ahead of her. There is now a massive hole in our family which will never be filled. Jem, you will never be forgotten. I know you're in a better place now, and I will always love you. Once the murder inquiry was officially opened... Investigators appealed to Gemma Adams' clients to get in touch so they could piece together her final movements. Detective Chief Inspector Skevington said, Our priorities are to find out how Gemma died, so I would encourage men who may have been with her to come forward and contact us as opposed to waiting for time to pass when we will have to contact them. Scores of officers continued searching the area of Thorpes Hill near where Gemma's body had been found, while specialist divers waded through the brook in an effort to find evidence, including Gemma's clothes, which had not been recovered. On the sixth day of the search, the divers found another body. It was just before midday on December 8th. A specialist search team came across the body of a young woman in the water. The officers who were part of the inquiry into Gemma Adams' murder and scoured two miles of the brook that ran into the River Orwell. The scene was located close to H.G. Gladwell and Son's animal feed store at Cop Doc Mill off the Old London Road. Due to heavy rain and recent floods, there was around two feet of water in the brook, and a significantly decomposed body was caught on vegetation near the muddy bank. Assistant Chief Constable Jackie Cheer later spoke about recovering the bodies. The bodies in the water, the most difficult things about those actually for us was recovering them. That brook was running very, very fast when those bodies were found and we needed to be very careful about how we removed the bodies with care from that brook so that we could capture all the forensic evidence we needed to. DCI Skevington told reporters that the police would not be able to draw conclusions on whether the victim's death was at the hands of a third party or if it was linked to Gemma Adams' murder. He added, ''We need to consider if there are any linkages between this finding today and those investigations. These circumstances are extremely unusual for Suffolk. To have a murder investigation and a suspicious death is almost unique.'' The constabular is treating this with the utmost seriousness. The naked body of the young woman was taken to Ipswich Hospital for a post-mortem. Dr. Nat Carey concluded that the remains had likely been in the water for at least a month, and there were a number of bruises on her right arm and on the back of her knee. The bruising was consistent with someone having kneeled on the victim or they had pinned her down although Dr. Carey could not rule out that she had died after being placed in the water. Bleeding in the middle ear within the temporal bone suggested that she had been asphyxiated, and damage to the thyroid cartilage supported this theory. Like Gemma Adams, the second young woman's lungs were hyperinflated, something that occurs when someone is fighting to breathe. The amount of heroin in the victim's system at the time of her death indicated that she could have been too intoxicated to resist any attack, but the pathologist was able to rule out an accidental overdose. Due to the condition of the remains, investigators decided to compare the woman's fingerprints to Tanya Nichol, and their suspicions that the missing 19-year-old had met the same fate as Gemma Adams were confirmed. Jim Jewell and Kerry Nickel had brought their children up in Ipswich. Their eldest daughter Tanya had been a promising and well-liked student at Gusford Primary School and Chantry High School. After Jim and Kerry separated when Tanya was in her early teens, Tanya visited her father several times a week while she lived with her mother and younger brother Aaron on Wolverstone Close. A neighbour told the Ipswich star that Tanya didn't play out on the street much as a child, but if she did, her mother always kept an eye on her. The neighbour added, Tanya was always very polite and was quite a sweet girl, really. She was a friendly little girl. She spoke nicely and wasn't rough. There are only nice things to say about her, really. Tanya's father, Jim, later recalled his daughter was happy at school. She had lots of friends and studied hard. Voicing how proud he was, Jim remarked, She was in the Sea Cadets and used to take such pride in hanging up her uniform all neat and tidy. She was twelve and met Prince Andrew when he visited. When Tanya was fifteen, She started hanging around with what her parents called the wrong crowd, and she was introduced to recreational drugs like cannabis. From that point, Tanya's life took a downward turn, and she began to take harder drugs. Her parents tried to encourage her to follow her ambitions of working in the beauty or music industry. They were not aware of the hole drugs had on their daughter. After losing her job at a massage parlor, Tanya started doing sex work on the streets. Dinah Thorpe, who had known the family since they moved to the area, said that although she had no idea that Tanya was a sex worker, she knew the family had been through hard times in the past. Dinah said, I was a bit surprised, but I can understand how someone who has never had much could find it easy money. When I first heard she was missing, I thought something must have happened because they are a very close family, and she is the sort of girl who would let her family know where she was. I can only really think of nice things to say about her and her mother. She was a lovely girl, and she didn't deserve this. A friend of Tanya's who worked at a massage parlour in Ipswich told the Ipswich star that she had spoken to Tanya a week before she went missing and asked her how she was able to get into a car with a stranger. The friend went on to say, I think even if I was really desperate, I wouldn't be able to do that. She was such a tiny girl, but she had a real feistiness to her and I know how dangerous it is for girls out there. I've learned the hard way. I never thought I would grow up to be a prostitute, but the reality is that it does go on, and people are too quick to judge. I think I speak for all the girls here when I say we will still be scared until we know this person has been caught. I'm definitely very worried for the girls that are still out there. They're getting younger every day. Once it was confirmed that the victim was missing 19-year-old Tanya Nicol. A press conference was held where police announced that they had launched a linked murder investigation. Local volunteer organisations spent time in the red light district which was by this point manned by a number of uniformed officers. Women who were still offering their services were advised to stay in groups and keep in contact with their friends and family. On the day that Tanya Nichols' body was found, news came in that another vulnerable woman had not come home. 29-year-old mother of one Annette Nichols had been reported missing by concerned family members, following the reports of someone targeting women in Ipswich's red-light district. It was quickly established that Annette had last been seen by a member of the public on Norwich Road just before 10pm on December 5th. She was described as white with shoulder-length wavy brown hair, standing 5 feet 3 inches tall. Annette was last seen wearing dark grey patterned leggings, calf-length boots and a dark-coloured bomber jacket over a low-cut black top fearing that something had happened to Annette. Police presence in the red light district was ramped up, but no one had seen Annette for days. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot,
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Shortly after 3.20pm on December 10th, Suffolk Police received a call. A passing motorist raised the alarm after a traumatic discovery near Woodland in Nacton close to the grounds of Amberfield Private School. Once officers saw the naked body of a young blonde woman laid out on the leafy ground, they knew it was not Annette Nichols. The victim was lying on her back with her arms outstretched in a cruciform pose. Her left palm faced up to the sky, and her right palm was flat against the undergrowth. While the woman's right leg was laid straight out, her left leg was bent at the knee. Bizarrely, her hair had been spread out above her head in a conical shape. Unlike the previous victims, the young woman appeared to have been dead for a week at most, and there was a greater chance of recovering forensic evidence because the body had not been dumped in water. To preserve the scene from heavy downpours, A large white tent was erected while the body was examined in situ. Upon initial examination, the pathologist noted slight bruising around the victim's neck. There were no marks on the body to indicate she had been dragged over the rough ground. Still, it was also obvious that the murder had taken place elsewhere, and the victim's body had been left 10 metres from the roadside. A post-mortem was conducted by Dr. Nat Carey at Ipswich Hospital. Toxicology reports indicated that the female had cocaine in her system. There were no signs that the victim's clothing had been forcibly removed, which indicated that she had been stripped after death. Her lungs were hyperinflated and air bubbles had settled on the surface, showing that she had fought to breathe. The pathologist concluded that the woman had died from asphyxia, which interfered with the normal mechanics of breathing. He believed it had been a subtle application of force to the victim's neck or mouth that had killed her. There were signs of trauma to the woman's genitals, and swabs were taken to be analysed in the hopes that DNA had been left behind. During the autopsy, Dr. Carey also discovered that the victim was three months pregnant. Most of the women operating in the red light district in Ipswich had been spoken to in the week since Tanya Nickel went missing. The police had compiled a list of names and descriptions for most of them. The victim had not been reported missing but she was quickly identified as 24-year-old Annalie Alderton, a single mother of one from Colchester. Annalie Alderton had been addicted to drugs for 8 years. After learning of her death, Annalie's grandmother, Joan Malloy, said, "I was gobsmacked to hear my granddaughter was dead." but the Annie I knew as a little girl had died years before. I remember her as a normal, artistic, bright little girl, happy and alive. Annie has been a girl more sinned against than sinning, but became addicted to heroin. An Ipswich native, Annerley Alderton and her mother Marie had lived in Cyprus for a few years before moving back to the UK when she was in her early teens. Her mother fondly described her as being an excellent student who had a knack for languages, quickly becoming fluent in Greek. When living in Ipswich with her father Roy, Annerley attended Copleston High School. She made a lot of friends in no time. Unfortunately, when Roy died of lung cancer a year later, from that point on, Annalise's life descended into chaos. On the day of her father's funeral, she ran away and began using drugs to numb her grief. By the age of 17, Annalise's relationship with her mother had fractured, and she moved into a council flat. A sex worker who knew Annalie later wrote in a tribute... She got on drugs at a young age and stayed at that age, and never really matured. She was a vulnerable girl. To fund an all-consuming drug addiction, Annalie resorted to sex work. As a consequence, it did not take long for her to get into trouble with the police. After serving a few short stints in prison for theft and several attempts at getting clean, Annalie fell pregnant with her first child, Freddie. Despite her love for her son, Annalie could not beat her addiction to crack cocaine, and she periodically reverted back to her old ways. In late 2006, she was living with her boyfriend Sam Jefford in a flat in Colchester, but she regularly visited her mother and son in Harwich, Essex. Sam said he never saw Annalie take hard drugs and he was unaware she was still working in the sex industry, although he knew she had in the past. According to Annalie's older brother Tom, Annalie was working hard to get sober for her son. In fact, she had only one short relapse in a two-year period, but something set her back in December. Police had spoken to Annalie on December 2nd and she told them that she was working to afford Christmas presents for her five-year-old son. The following day, December 3rd, Annalie went to Harwich to visit her family, bringing gifts with her as promised. Annalie's mother knew how her daughter lived. Annalie was open about her lifestyle and even spoke about the women that had gone missing. She told her mother that Gemma Adams had taught her how to take a client's money and run without providing any services. Annaly's brother Tom thought Gemma's disappearance could have prompted his sister's relapse. He said, She'd been really good friends with Gemma Adams, so reading about Gemma may not have been good for her mental health either. We know she was very upset about it. Annalie took pride in her appearance, and that evening she showered and put on makeup in her mother's bathroom before she got ready to leave again. Marie would later recall being annoyed and angry as Annalie had lost more weight, and decided to bleach her naturally reddish-brown hair. Annalie's mother said, There were two different Annies, one with brown hair and one with blonde Tom thought that was a sign his sister had relapsed and was going back to sex work. He told the guardian, Annie dyed her hair that night, which was significant as it was part of a guise she'd assume as a coping mechanism. Annalie called out, Bye Mum, I love you, as she left. Marie remembered being too angry to reply at the time, something she would regret. That evening, Annalie boarded a train to Colchester from Harwich Station and was believed to have travelled to Ipswich. As part of a 12-month supervision order imposed on Annalie in September 2006, she had to attend regular appointments with her probation officer. She never missed any of the 22 appointments until December 4th, when it was believed she was already dead. 24-year-old mother of three Paula Clennell was reported missing by her boyfriend on December 11th, the day after Annalee Alderton's body was found. Paula had spoken to the police during the search for Tanya Nickel, and she had also given an interview to ITV Anglia a week earlier about Gemma Adams. With her back to the camera, Paula was asked by the reporter why she had decided to come out on the streets despite the risks. Because I need the money, she replied. Paula explained it had made her wary of getting into strangers' cars, but admitted she would probably still do it. The interviewer told Paula that the next car she got into could be driven by the person who killed Gemma. Paula Clonell was originally from Berwick-upon-Tweed in Northumberland and moved to Ipswich with her mother Isabella and older sister Alice after her parents split up when she was in her early teens. Her father Brian stayed in Berwick and as Paula got older and more troubled, they lost touch. When she was 16 years old, Paula had stopped to help an elderly woman who fell. Her act of kindness was commended in the local paper and was a testament to the type of person she was. Described as a kind and caring person, Paula's life changed when she became addicted to heroin and eventually lost custody of her three young children. Paula expressed her love for her daughters in yearly letters she was permitted to send and she had told others she was desperate to get them back once she got clean. In late 2006, Paula Clonell had been living with a man in Ipswich. He allowed her to stay and gave her money for drugs in exchange for sexual favours. On December 9th and 10th, Paula and another sex worker who was identified as Miss F smoked heroin and crack cocaine together in the man's house. Miss F said that when the man refused to give Paula more money, she decided to go out on the street to work instead. Paula, who was described as being 5 feet 7 inches tall with a medium build, blue eyes, a sporty complexion and mousy hair, had last been seen wearing blue jeans and a zip-up top. A witness saw her cycling along London Road on a blue bike around 10.40pm on December 10th assistant chief constable of the suffolk constabulary jackie cheer had advised working women to stay off the streets issuing a warning to females in the area she added you have really got to look after each other plan how you are going to get there and plan how you are going to get home and don't deviate from that do not leave your friends on their own With mounting fears of a serial killer targeting women in Ipswich, clinical forensic psychologist Mike Berry spoke to the East Anglian Daily Times about the criminal profile of the killer. He's comfortable in the red light district. He can go in and pick up a girl. He's not worried or wacko. He could be a regular punter. He's probably known to them. Although there was nothing concrete to link the three murders yet, Mike Berry felt that the site where Annalee Alderton's body had been left suggested that the killer was evolving. He said, It may indicate that it was a bit rushed, or the killer might be clever and goading the police. I find it worrying that there has been three in two weeks. Sex workers have always been at high risk due to the nature of their profession and their lifestyle. Professor David Wilson, working for what was then the University of Central England, offered his thoughts. We need to remember that Ipswich and Norwich have a history of unsolved murders of prostitutes going back to the early 1990s. I do not believe that a person suddenly emerges as a triple killer in a short space of time. The other thing to say is that the killer has been very organised and competent. He clearly knows the road systems very well. I visited the sites where two of the bodies were found, and I would not have been able to find my way around those roads. This person knows the area well. Appeals for information on the whereabouts of Annette Nichols and Paula Clonell went unanswered. A police spokesperson said, It is very concerning in the current climate and given the amount of publicity. However, it is possible that the women don't realise how much concern there is for them. We are still hoping that they are found safe and well. We would urge them or anyone who knows where they are to get in touch urgently. Paula Clonnell's father, Brian, appealed for her to get in touch. Paula, everyone loves you, and we want you back. There's no repercussions to come from this. Just say you're alive. We want you back safely. Paula had gone missing while police presence in the red light district was at an all-time high, so it was terrifying to imagine that the killer could have been so brazen as to abduct her. On December 12th, just after 3pm, a member of the public who was walking along Old Felixstowe Road near the turn for Levington came across a naked woman's body in a clearing 20 feet from the roadside. Officers from the Suffolk Constabulary quickly darted to the scene, which was around a mile from where Annalee Alderton's body was discovered two days earlier. The deceased female was lying on her right side with her limbs stretched out. Her blonde hair was caught in brambles, as though her body had been hurriedly dumped between an hour and a day before being found. Half an hour later, a police helicopter was dispatched to survey the scene from above. Within minutes, the crew on board radioed with a second disturbing fight. They alerted officers on the ground to a second body a few hundred yards away. This woman had been posed similarly to Annalee Alderton in a cruciform position. She appeared to have been there for several days. DCS Stuart Gull, who was at the scene, said that the bodies could have been left before or after the police cordon was set up in Nacton two days earlier. Gull added, The old Felixstowe Road is fairly well used, and I would ask anyone who has travelled it to cast their minds back. If you saw anybody or anything, in particular a vehicle, we need to know the details. We have three prostitutes murdered now, possibly another two. I do not know what starker warning there can be other than stay off the streets in Suffolk. I would encourage females going out clubbing to take significant precautionary measures. Investigators wasted no time securing both scenes to try and salvage as much evidence as possible. The first body was removed that night, and a post-mortem was conducted by Dr Nat Carey the following morning. The victim was estimated to have been dead for around a day, meaning the killer had abducted the woman and dumped her body while the police were a mile from where Anneli's body had been recovered. Officers recognised the young woman as Paula Clonell, who had been reported missing just two days earlier. Irregular marks along Paula's jawline, chin and nose were noted, as was a pattern of bruising across her neck. Like the other victims, Paula's lungs were hyperinflated, showing that her breathing had been disrupted, likely by someone choking her with their arm or the crook of their elbow. In the days that followed, Anita Norris, the grandmother of Paula Clonell's three children, spoke with the Ypswich star. According to Anita, Paula was taking drugs to cope with losing custody of her children. Anita said she always thought she would get them back even until recently having your children taken away is the most heartbreaking thing you could ever know reminiscing about a family holiday to Disney World Florida four years earlier Anita added she was so happy back then and that's how I want her to be remembered I was like a second mum to her I loved her and always will love her. No one will ever take that away. She loved her kids and didn't deserve what happened. She was a victim of society. It's such a wasted life. I know the real Paula. The person that people who think of her just as a prostitute don't know. Paula Clonnell was remembered by her mother and sister as being full of character and always laughing. As children, Paula and her older sister Alice would do everything together, from horse riding to dancing in the street with their portable stereo. Her mother Isabella recalled, Paula was a very intelligent and quick-thinking toddler, and she had bags of energy. She was always running around and getting up to mischief. She loved to dress up and do all the girly things like putting makeup on and cutting her own hair. She also liked playing on her bikes and scooter, digging the garden, picking flowers, painting the car with white emulsion, putting fairy liquid in the fish tank and also painting on the front doorstep, window sills, back garden lawn and herself a lovely pillar box red gloss. She was my bundle of joy. In the last letter Paula sent her mother, she described being terrified of working on the streets, but she wanted to save money to get a house for herself and her daughters. The second body found on the roadside had been posed in the shape of a crucifix and was not recovered until the following day. Detective Chief Superintendent Stuart Gull, who was leading the murder hunt, said, I appreciate it maybe seems quite callous to leave the girls in the open overnight, and we try and do it as dignified as we can, but it's important to collect as much evidence from the scenes as possible. We only get one chance at these scenes and need to get it right. The fifth victim, discovered in just 10 days, was identified as 29-year-old Annette Nichols. The pathologist examined her body and found some fly infestation and marked decomposition, which suggested she had been dead for a number of days. This also meant she died soon after she was last seen. A scratch on her cheek and lower back supported the theory that she had been dragged from the road to the place where her body was found. She also had smears on the tops of her feet. It appeared as though her legs had trailed on the ground when she was being carried. There was heroin, methadone, and cocaine found in a net system. However, she did not die of an overdose. The cause of death was listed as asphyxia due to compression off the neck. Annette Nichols was born and raised in Ipswich. Described as a bubbly and generous person who had to have birthday parties in the garden due to the number of friends she had, Annette had set her sights on owning her own business one day. After graduating from Hollywells High School, Annette completed a four-year NVQ course in cosmetology at Suffolk College. At that time, she was a single mother to her then four-year-old son, Farron. Just a year later, however, Annette was gripped by addiction. Her cousin Tanya told The Independent... She used to be such an absolutely outstanding person with the most lovely personality. She was stunningly beautiful inside and out. I was so proud of her when she passed her course. But then almost overnight, she got into heroin and it changed her. It was a bit like flicking a light switch. Annette's son was her entire world but as things got worse she knew he would be better off in the care of her mother, Rosemary. Tanya recalled the last time she had seen her cousin, three weeks before her body was discovered. It was midnight on West End Road. Tanya was worried for Annette, but her cousin didn't want to stop working and asked Tanya not to tell anyone she saw her. Tanya added, now I just wish that I had picked her up and dragged her home. Like the other victims Tanya Nickel, Gemma Adams, Annalee Alderton, and Paula Clonell, Annette Nichols didn't choose to live her life the way it had turned out. They all fell victim to drug addiction and believed they had no choice but to go out and make money by working in the sex industry a job they felt conflicted about or embarrassed by, fueling the need to numb themselves with heroin or cocaine. Annalee Alderton's older brother Tom later said, The prostitute label is annoying because it was a last resort and was on the table as something she'd do if she was desperate, but it was only one thing on a vast resume, including legal things. The media mentioned all of them by their worst, most desperate actions. And that's not how they spent 99.9% of their lives.
0: At the time you don't think about it, you really don't care. It's, it's about, this is, this. you see that person as a bag of heroin.
1: With, with heroin, that relaxes you. Um, if you take too much, that relaxes you to an extent where you're almost dead. With crack cocaine, um, it has the opposite effect and it brings you up and makes you hyperactive. So
2: for um, the killer to be giving them drugs, that would have been heroin. And they would have put up less, less of a struggle,
0: less of a fight. And well, I believe most of the girls are
3: dependent on heroin, heroin anyway.
1: In late 2006, an estimated 30 to 40 women in the sex industry worked in Ipswich. They all knew one another. Most had fallen on hard times and ended up working on the streets. The Ipswich star set up a campaign called Somebody's Daughter to highlight the plight of sex workers in the area, particularly those struggling with addiction. Paula Clonell's sister Alice later said. The last time I saw my sister was by a complete fluke. I bumped into Paula on the estate where I live. She was really loving towards me, full of regards to all the family. When we parted, she stroked my face and said, Love you, sis. See you soon. I'll call you. We never did see each other again. The next time I saw her was when we had to identify her body. I know it's hard to accept someone with an addiction, or even try and support them, but turning my back was the worst thing I have ever done. At the end of the day, these people need love and support, and there is nothing out there for them. Maybe the Somebody's Daughter campaign can help some young mothers and girls who have gone off the path because once they're gone... They cannot get back on their own. We need more done to help them. With five bodies found in just ten days, the hunt for the man the media dubbed the Suffolk Strangler became the biggest inquiry in history for one of the UK's smallest police forces. Hundreds of officers were drafted in from 31 forces across the country to help with the investigation. Thousands of hours of CCTV footage from Ipswich to as far as Essex, where Annalee Alderton travelled from, had to be combed through to try and find some clue that would point to the killer's identity. Although the five murders were being investigated separately, information from each was shared with the detectives on the other cases. CCS Gull said, There are a number of crossovers with the women. Throughout this week, I have highlighted the similarities between these five deaths, these murders. They all knew each other, and there would have been some crossover as far as clients are concerned and their friends. On December 15th, a press conference was held at Suffolk Police's Martlesham headquarters. The parents of the youngest victim, 19-year-old Tanya Nichol, paid tribute to their daughter. Tanya's father, Jim, said, She was a caring, loving, sensitive girl who would never hurt anyone. Unfortunately, drugs took her away in her own secret world, a world that neither of us were aware of. Tanya has been taken by someone who needs to be found. We ask for anyone who knows this person or persons to come forward and contact the police. Jim then deviated from a formal statement and spoke from his heart.
3: This is for the families who have lost their daughters, including us. They can't take away our memories. They can't take away our love, our fortitude, our courage. Grieve for our daughters but not unnecessarily live your lives through our departed daughters as they would want to see us getting on with our lives and not going around with our heads bowed down. A time for sadness and a time for gladness, a gladness that they belong belong to us, a gladness of happy times we shared, the joy they brought to us, A thankfulness, a thankfulness that they know at peace. Thank you.
1: Sifting through over 10,000 calls, investigators were informed about a man who claimed to have been with all of the victims before they were killed. 37-year-old Tesco worker Tom Stevens spoke to the Sunday Mirror on December 17th, 2006. According to Stevens, who claimed to have been questioned four times by the police, he was a friend of all of the murdered women. The former special police constable and taxi driver told reporters that he had started using sex workers 18 months earlier when his marriage broke down. Stevens told the Mirror, ''I was closest to Tanya, and Gemma as well. I was close to others as well, but I should have been there to watch over them. I don't have alibis for some of the times. Actually, I'm not entirely sure I have tight alibis for any of the times, but I'm not worried about being charged. I'm innocent.'' Stevens proclaimed he was the closest thing to a boyfriend Tanya had and insisted that he used to drive her around, like Paula Clonell had told the police in her statement just after Tanya went missing. Stevens added, If Tanya hadn't been the first, I would be out there in the street watching over her now. I could have been there for the others. If I was out tonight, I could watch over a girl but I would tell her that I can't keep her safe. Speaking with journalist Michael Duffy, Stevens went on to say, Gemma and Tanya, the ones I was closest to, are the best looking girls who do this in Ipswich. In fact, they were probably the top five. Over time, I have been involved with most of the girls. If you count, there are about 50 over the last year. Stevens also claimed the victims would follow his orders. I would have complete opportunity. The girls would have trusted me so much. If I had blindfolded them and taken them to the edge of a cliff and said, take two steps, but take three and you'll go over, they would have taken the two steps. According to Stevens, he was the prime suspect in the case. From the police profiling, it does look like me. White male, between 25 and 40, knows the area, works strange hours. The bodies have got close to my house. If new information, coincidental information crops up, I could get arrested. Tom Stevens described himself as a lonely and sad man, who on paper should be attractive but suggested there was something about himself that women didn't like. His home in Trimley St Martin had been searched in late November, but the police had not publicly named him as a suspect. Just one day after the interview was published, a press conference was held by Suffolk police, and DCS Gull made an announcement.
2: Uh, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Detectives investigating the murder of five women in Ipswich area have today, Monday the 18th of December 2006, arrested a man. The 37-year-old man was arrested at his home address in Trimley near Felixstowe at approximately 7.20am this morning. He has been arrested on the suspicion of murdering all five women. The man is currently in custody at a police station in Suffolk where he will be questioned about the deaths later today.
1: Speaking in the wake of Tom Stevens' arrest, his neighbour David Robinson was interviewed by a reporter for the East Anglian Daily Times. A couple of weeks ago after the first body was found... Forensic officers in white suits came to do a search. I never really saw much activity in the house, and I wouldn't know the man who lives there if I saw him. There were lights kept on until quite late at night, but they were on and off, really. I suppose I did keep a bit more of an eye on the house after the police came the first time. They never knocked on my door, and I suppose it does make you wonder. With Stevens in custody on suspicion of murdering all five women, investigators turned to the forensic evidence that had been collected in the hopes of securing a DNA match. Samples had been recovered from the bodies of Annalee Lee Alderton, Paula Clonnell and Annette Nichols, and a full DNA profile was generated. That DNA was then compared with Tom Stevens' profile and processed through the National DNA Database. Within hours of Stephen's arrest, the results excluded him as the contributor of the DNA, but there was a match on file. Three years prior, a 48-year-old man had been convicted of stealing £80 from a pub till. And as part of a routine process, his DNA sample was uploaded into the National DNA Database.
2: A second man has now been arrested by detectives investigating the murder of five women in Suffolk. The 48 year old man was arrested at his home address in Ipswich at approximately 5 a.m. this morning, Tuesday, the 19th of December 2006. He has been arrested on suspicion of murdering all five women, Gemma Adams, Tanya Nicol, Annalia Alderton, Paula Clennell and Annette Nichols. The man is currently in custody at a police station in Suffolk where he will be questioned about the deaths later today. Police will not be naming the police station where the man is being held. The 37 year old man who was arrested at his home in Trimley yesterday, Monday the 18th of December 2006, remains in custody.
1: Stephen Gerald James Wright lived on London Road in the middle of Ipswich's red light district. Police arrived before dawn to make a
0: second arrest in two days. Stephen Wright was taken from his home. Shortly
3: afterwards, both the house and road were sealed off.
2: I think we're all, you know, in deep, deep shock, really, the way we all feel.
3: I
1: feel sick. I woke up with a headache this morning, be honest. It's awful.
2: You know, it's, it's a total shock, really, because the thing is, he seemed very, very quiet unobtrusive, obtrusive. Um. Nice guy. Well, very clean cut, well presented, well-mannered.
1: Shortly after the arrest, police took away Wright's car, a Blue Mondeo, covering the area where it had been parked to preserve forensic evidence. There still remains the overriding questions of when and where the girls were murdered. This is the end of episode 44. The second instalment in this two-part case will be available in four days. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.